0: We've been talking and, Mary we just mentioned the Falling Upward book that we're doing with Richard Rohr on Wednesdays is about the transition from the first to the second half of life. And if you're not familiar with that, the first half of life, you know, from our 20s through our 30s generally, are all focused externally. They're about building the necessary foundation and platform of life. And so we've got to build our family and our career and everything that goes with it. And necessarily. We take meaning and purpose from those accomplishments, from the roles that we play, from those things that are external to ourselves. But there comes a time when that fuel just starts to run out. And it can be in the mid-30s to the mid-40s, but we call it the midlife crisis. You can call it whatever you want, but what it is is the realization that we're not getting the same meaning and purpose from out there. What do we do now? Is this all there is? Where do we go from here? And if you successfully make that transition from the first to the second half, where you start looking is inward, and you realize it's in here that true meaning and purpose and identity comes from, because this is where we connect with God. Jesus said, you're not going to find the kingdom out there somewhere by observation. Look, here it is, or there it is. He said, it's entos, which in Greek means both within, among, and in the midst of, all at the same time. It's one of those all-purpose prepositions, right? You know, But it means that it's here now, and it's within. Kingdom moves from the inside out, not from the outside in. And so the first half of life is doomed to not being able to get to what Jesus calls kingdom, this quality of life that we can have because it's still moving from outside in. But as soon as we can switch that and start moving from inside out, that's where everything can really start to happen. So the first half of life is about acquisition. The first half of life is about addition. It's about learning. But the second half of life is about relinquishing. It's about subtraction and it's about unlearning. It's about emptying everything out that we think we know so that we can be refilled from another source. But you can't fill a full vessel So there has to be the descent, there has to be the unlearning and that's uncomfortable, it's disturbing and it can be downright traumatic in its own right if your egoic consciousness is still hanging on for dear life. It's exactly what Jesus meant when he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Rich being not just in material wealth. But in anything that we're clinging to, anything that we see as our source of sustenance and survival and power and control, affection and esteem, all those primary drives. If we're holding on to something, we're not going to be able to move into this place Jesus is talking about, this second half of life. So you have to see the symmetry here as we're talking about this you know the first half of life is about gathering it's about construction the second half of life is about scattering and, and deconstruction but not the material things it doesn't mean you have to go give your whole life savings away or empty out your 401k so that's not what we're talking about here this is an interior transformation an interior awareness that we're building that means we're going to start balancing And if we have burned out on our exterior tasks, if they're no longer giving us the meaning and purpose and sense of identity that we started with, if we can find that interiorly, then it reinfuses meaning and purpose into everything else we do. And we get a jump start. You know, we can keep going. So that's it. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get to the place where we're ready to relinquish. I worked with a a great guy, um, last secular job I had before I went full-time ministry, and he was, uh, how old was he at the time? I don't know. I think he was 60 at the time or something like that. Anyway, um, it was on his birthday and he said, he held up his key ring that still had a bunch of keys on it. He said, you know, my goal is to give every one of these keys away because when I get the last one away, I'm free. And I love that idea. You know, he was already at the point where he was starting to let go. The keys, of course, represented obligation and represented responsibility and all the things that he had to get up and do every day. But if you think about it, the keys also represent our need for control, our need for certainty, and to let those keys go, to give those keys away, to let go of the illusion of our power because it is just an illusion, right? How much power do we really have to let go of the distractions, all the busyness, everything, is what this second half of life is all about. Now, the effect, if you haven't figured it out yet, is a second half of life faith community. That's what we're all about. We started as a recovery community, but it's the same thing in recovery. If you're in early recovery and you're not ready and willing to let go, if you're not ready and willing to accept your powerlessness, then there is gonna be no further movement along that way. And it's the same for all of us, because let's face it, everybody's recovering from something. We've all got unfinished business. And until and unless we're ready to submit to a power greater than ourselves, which is to empty ourselves out, to find meaning, purpose, and identity from within in connection with that power, then we're not gonna be able to move on. So the effect, since its inception, whether it was in recovery or now working with y'all normies, right? Um, We're we're working in the same direction. It's about this relinquishing. It's about allowing ourselves to have that descent into humility, into submittedness. Now, notice I didn't say submission. That's a a word nobody likes, submission. But the reason we don't like submission, I think, is because it, it, it seems to paint us into a corner of passivity. It paints us into a corner where you know we're, we're kind of victims. Uh, that's not it at all. That's why I use submittedness because I think that gives us at least another you know lever in to realize that in submittedness it is nothing about being passive. It is the most active stance that you can take to keep coming every moment into the situation, into the relationship and try to understand how you can leave these people better than you found them. What does love require here? You're not just passively resorting to a law or a rule or a guideline. You actually are there. You're letting your ethics be situational. You're letting your love be situational. And that requires everything of us, all the energy we can possibly muster. So relinquishing, descent in hu- into humility. And then, of course, oneness, to be able to see ourselves as one and connect with everyone. And until we discover that all we think we know and everything that we think we have completely misses the point that it's not important or even accurate, and we hang on to all these ideas, how do we know they're even accurate? But we hang on to them. To realize that everything we think we know is only helpful as a pointer, to point us in a direction to experience the laying down of it all. Because until we're ready to do that, we can't make any further progress along Jesus' way. We cannot think our way into kingdom. We can't obey our way into kingdom. The usual rules for the first half of life do not apply at all to the second half. So what happens? What happens when we actually start to lay it all down? or when life actually strips it away from us. You know, what starts to happen when we do this? I was just talking to um, a woman that I was counseling, uh, just yesterday or the day before, and she was stressed and anxious, and she was heartbroken over the loss of a significant relationship. Her boyfriend um, was just so toxic, you know, but she was heartbroken just the same. And what she kept asking is, why is it so hard for me to let go Why is it so hard for me to let go of him? Um, She said that she didn't really even recognize herself anymore within the context of the relationship because she knew that it was toxic. She knew that he didn't want the same things that she wanted in a relationship. And yet she chose him she kept staying with him. And every time they broke up, she'd go back to him. And she was in this cycle you know, of, of codependence, basically. But that was interesting. When I brought that word up, she said, well, I don't see myself as codependent. <laughs> I said, yeah, most of us don't. All of us are to some degree. But when it becomes actually dysfunctional and, and, uh, and, and keeps you in an abusive situation, then you got to really take a look at it. But she didn't recognize herself anymore. She says, I'm not that person. I'm a strong woman. And she was trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. And this heartbreak was stripping the illusions away from her of who she thought she was and the way that she saw herself. And those illusions are the ideas and the images we have of ourself that we can only afford to keep while times are good, right? Because when times get difficult then everything starts to get stripped away, and we need to face our flaws, and we need to face the unfinished business that is causing repeated thought and behavior patterns. I mentioned to her that, you know, there was someone in the White House a few cycles ago that said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Have you ever heard that one before? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, however they meant it politically, which is probably cynical, you know, here in what we're talking about, it really makes sense. You know, we've been seeing all these news reports about Lake Mead emptying out, and and as a, the the, the surface drops further and further. It's like all these bodies from the Mafia days are being revealed and exposed and, and sunken boats and this and that. I heard that the Mississippi is doing the same thing. It's it's losing its level and a steamboat was suddenly exposed that, that had sunk in the in the river hundred and some years ago. You know? It's kinda like that with us. When we start to move into this descent, or when a tragedy or a heartbreak or a loss in life starts to strip away these illusions, as if the the level of our, level of the water of our distraction, of our illusions is just emptying out until these things are exposed, you know, like skeletons in the closet or something. And this is what she was facing, that things are being exposed to her that she really hadn't dealt with her whole life. And and exposing this, this deep debris, the unconscious beliefs, the fears, the motives, the aversions, we're all being laid bare. And that's not just for her, but for all of us. This is the way it works. And when it becomes laid bare, when we actually see some of the things that are going on, now we have the chance to see reality as it is. We can see ourselves as we are. And we finally can see the possibility of change, what we can actually do about it when we start to face these things. It's creating a brand new perspective for us, obviously, a perspective that's closer to the ground, which is kind of counterintuitive as well, right? Because we want as, We think of perspective as being raised so we can see more. But what Jesus is talking about is the perspective actually needs to move closer to the ground to the standing height of a child, to the kneeling height of a servant. That is the perspective that's going to change everything for us. To get us closer to the ground, closer to the humus, which is where our word humility comes from. You know, To be humble is to be at ground level, to see ourselves as we really are, to see our relationships to each other and to God as they really are. And to avoid hubris. Richard Rohr defined hubris in a perfect way, I thought, in this book that we're reading. He said, hubris is the refusal to be humbled by that which is humbling in your life. Not bad, huh? Because life is going to humble you all day long, but if you refuse it, there's your hubris. But sometimes life just does something like it did to this woman, and she suddenly had to face all these exposed wrecks and debris in her life. And so there are events like this, both tragic and joyous and peak experiences, that have this ability, because of their intensity, to really blow open the curtains, to really burst the bubble of everything that we are familiar with and have been running around in our lives for so long. I wanted to read you an article that I found that I thought was really cool. You all know William Shatner, the original Captain Kirk, right, you know? And uh, a year ago, he actually went into low, low orbit um, space flight with Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos. Isn't it be nice to have enough money to just start your own aeronautics company? Oh, well, I think I'm going to start space flight. Hey, why, why not? So, Jeff Bezos' company allowed William Shatner as, as a, one of a group of four on this this. Uh, craft that took off, went into a low orbit, stayed there for a while, and then returned. So here is Captain Kirk actually going into space for the first time, even if it's just a low orbit. And it's really interesting what his reaction was. And I want to read a little bit of this article, actually two different articles. Astronauts have for decades described their trips to space as breathtaking and humbling A reminder of the Earth's fragility and humanity's need to serve as stewards of our home planet. Actor William Shatner, who joined a suborbital space tourism flight last year, experienced the same phenomenon, but he had a very distinctive observation when he turned his gaze from the Earth to the black expanse of the cosmos. All I saw was death, he wrote. I saw a cold, dark, black emptiness. It was unlike any blackness you can see or feel on Earth. It was deep, enveloping, all-encompassing. I turned back to the light of home. I could see the curvature of the Earth, the beige of the desert, the white of the clouds, and the blue of the sky. It was life, nurturing, sustaining life, Mother Earth, Gaia. And I was leaving her. Everything I had thought was wrong. Everything I had expected to see was wrong. There's something called the overview effect that astronauts and those who go into space have been describing for as long as they've had space travel for, what, 60, 70 years now. The overview effect is a cognitive shift reported by some astronauts while viewing the Earth from space. Researchers have characterized the effect as a state of awe with self transcendent qualities precipitated by a particularly striking visual stimulus. The most prominent common aspects of personally experiencing the earth from space are appreciation and perception of beauty, unexpected and even overwhelming emotion, and an increased sense of connection to other people and the earth as a whole. The effect can cause changes in the observer's self-concept and value system and can be transformative. Michael Collins, Apollo 11 in 1969, said that the thing that really surprised me was that Earth projected an air of fragility. And why? I don't know. I don't know to this day. I had a feeling it's tiny, it's shiny, it's beautiful, it's home, and it's fragile. Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14, in 1971, described it as an explosion of awareness and an overwhelming sense of oneness and connectedness accompanied by an ecstasy, an epiphany. And then William Shatner, again, in 2021, said immediately after landing that everybody in the world needs to do this. The covering of blue, the atmosphere he's talking about, was this sheet this blanket, this comforter of blue that we have around us. And then suddenly you shoot through it as though you whip off a sheet when you're asleep and you're looking into blackness, into black ugliness. And you look down and there's the blue down there and the black up there. And it's Mother Earth and comfort. And there is, is there death? I don't know. Immediately after his October 2021 Blue Origin flight, William Shatner told founder Jeff Bezos, "'What you have given me is the most profound experience. "'I hope I never recover from this. "'I hope that I can maintain what I feel now.'" A year later, he recounted that it took hours for him to realize why he wept after stepping out of the spacecraft. "'I realized I was in grief for the Earth.'" It was among the strongest feelings of grief I have ever encountered. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm nurturing of Earth below filled me with overwhelming sadness. Every day we are confronted with the knowledge of further destruction of Earth at our hands. It filled me with dread. My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral." Now, he took a certain sensibility into that experience, right? You know, someone would have felt the celebration, he felt the funeral, but nobody was left unchanged by an experience like that. If you can imagine getting off of this planet and being able to look back at it, you know, that famous iconic shot from the, from the moon, Earthrise, you know, just this blue jewel just rising into utter blackness uh, and realizing, you know, that's all there is. This blue ball is everything. So this overview effect, it's a moment, it's an event, it's an experience or an image that shatters our familiar worldview. We don't have to go to space to have one of these, but that's pretty intense, right? It opens you up. It can be positive or it can be negative in valence, but it opens you up. Now, think about it. Have you had one of these? Have you had an experience that seemed to just change everything, even if it was temporary, right? He hopes it'll never leave him, but sometimes it does. And maybe what you experienced wasn't as dramatic as we're talking about here, and it may be that your experience wasn't all at once in one event. Some of you have told me about great conversion events that you've had that just changed your whole look uh, outlook on life. But for me, it's been more gradual. It's been a gradual transformation with punctuation marks along the way, right? There'll be moments where something seems to break through, but it feels more gradual. But it has had the same effect of changing my entire worldview, changing the way I look at life, changing the way that I try to do life. And once you see this, you can't unsee it anymore. Once that green curtain has been pulled away and you see the little man at the controls, you're never going to look at the wizard the same way, are you? And you can't unsee that. That greater perspective, that greater insight with the curtain pulled, with the bubble burst, is everything that we're talking about here. Shatner was overcome with grief over the earth. He saw it as this precious, fragile, unique ball of life hanging in space the only spot of warmth in this vicious cold of space, as he called it, holding everything that we are, all life, everything we know, everything that we've ever experienced as a species, as a race, and all the other species who have shared the earth with us, all right here, all on this one ball, all on this one spot of warmth. And guess what? There's no backup. It's this one unique ball. No backup. Always at risk. And when you strip all the way down to that, things start to change. Everything we are, all on this one place. There was a a scene in a movie that I thought was... (laughs) Maybe it'll help you, maybe it won't, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, It was the the second Blade Runner uh, that came out just uh, last year, year before that, whatever it's been now. And in it, there is a clone and an AI, an artificial intelligence entity that are friends and actually emotionally connected, but they can't touch each other because she's just a hologram that's projected. And her whole consciousness, the the AI, is loaded up into, you know, like the internet or the the cloud, whatever. And she has a, a node in his apartment, and she can you know, at at will, kind of appear as a hologram. But as he has to go on the run, she wants to go with him. And the only way that they can do that without them tracing him by her signal is that she has to be completely erased from the cloud and downloaded into this one portable drive, whatever it happened to be, right? And he says, I can't do that. There'd be no backup, you know? If we lose this, you're gone. And her response to him is, just like a real girl. You know? She takes that risk. She finally risks being as fragile, as mortal as he is, as we all are, in order to be with him. It's kind of a beautiful moment. you know. But this is the idea here. You look at Earth from space and you realize there's no backup. This is everything we have and everything we are. It changes the way that we look at things. When we get stripped down to that point, whatever it is in our life that has done it, or if we have encouraged it ourselves through contemplative practice, it's very clarifying. We can actually see what happens. And it's also transforming. One other movie. Remember Overboard? Goldie (laughs) Hawn? So if you know the story, you know that she was just the worst of the worst of a rich person, right? just completely entitled and oblivious to anybody but herself, complete narcissist. And then she falls overboard. She loses her memory. And um, she ends up being the wife of this sweaty carpenter who's got three kids and uh, lives in a hovel. And for however many months it's been, she is his wife because he was deceiving her on that. When she finally gets back to her yacht and to her life, her mother and her her husband, she's not the same person anymore. Even though her memory has been restored, you know, and she's serving people to their you know disgusting. We got people for that, and she wants to serve them food. And then she's hanging out with the crew down below decks instead, of, because that's where she feels most at home. And at one point, she apologizes for the way that she treated essentially the butler, you know, Roddy McDowell. And uh, he says apology accepted. And then she says, everyone thinks I'm crazy around here. Do you think they're right? Listen to his response. Oh, no, madam. Oh, no. You, most of us go through life with blinders on, madam, knowing only that one little station to which we were born. But now you, madam, on the other hand, had the rare privilege of escaping your bonds just for a spell, to see life from an entirely new perspective. How you choose to use that information, madam, is entirely up to you. How are we going to choose to use this information that we get when we have a moment that transforms us, that is transformative? Will we let it transform us? When we are stripped down and we have been pushed out further along the path of Jesus' way of descent, are we going to accept that position and continue from that point? Or are we going to scurry back to what's familiar and try to rebuild our illusions as best we can? How are we going to use this information? What is this all about? This is the, the crux of what we're trying to understand here. The traumas and the heartbreaks, falling in love, right? Peak events going into space, but also illness and injury and even just age can all pull back the curtain expose the illusions, expose the distractions that we have been living. And the question is, will we continue the journey from that point, or will we try to run back into the illusion? Now, is there a book in the Bible that really expresses this? Is there a book in the Bible that exemplifies the second half, these breakthroughs and these breakdowns that are absolutely necessary to get us to clarity, to get us to a sense of really seeing reality? Well, yes, there is. There better be, right, if I have that build up for it. The book is called Ecclesiastes, right? Right? Ecclesiastes. And, and, you know, what what, it, what does that mean, Ecclesiastes? Well, it's the Latin transliteration of the Greek word that translates a Hebrew word, Kohelet, you know. So it kind of went around the block her ways. Kohelet is actually, and this is, you're going to like this, ladies, this is a feminine word. And it really means gatherer or assembler in the sense of one who gathers an assembly of people. And in this case, it refers to the one who speaks to the assembly. So it means teacher or preacher. And so it's typically translated as teacher in many of our English translations, but Ecclesiastes just means that. It means teacher or preacher. It is the person who actually wrote the book, okay, the teacher, the preacher. And traditionally, that would be King Solomon at the end of his life. He has tried everything to create meaning and purpose for himself tried everything to find fulfillment in life, whether it's pleasure, whether it's physical riches, whether it's accomplishment, great works, and wisdom itself. He's tried everything and realized at the end of his life that everything falls short. Nothing is taking him where he really wants to go now that he is faced with his imminent death, right? Because death is the great leveler. (laughs) And you start to realize no accomplishment survives the headstone What is it that I've been doing all my life? Let's take a look at what he writes in uh, Ecclesiastes 1. And John, if you can pull up Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 18. Um, This is not in your handouts. I have another section there. And so if he can pull that up. The words of the teacher, that would be Kohelet, right? Ecclesiastes, son of David, king in Jerusalem. He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything. Is meaningless. do want you to say what you mean, right, buddy? The word he's using there in, in uh, Hebrew is hevel. It means vain. It means futile. It means mere breath. It means to no purpose or no profit. And so it can be translated as meaningless or vanity, as you've probably heard it in the King James version and so on and so forth. As we skip to verse three, He asks, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And this is the central question that he asks in the book and he asks it over and over again and he's finally going to answer it. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? He's just done a lifetime of this spectacularly, you know, a thousand concubines, great building projects, everything you can imagine that a human life can acquire. He's acquired it and he's still not satisfied. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the people of old. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He's saying none of the accomplishments that we do in this life ultimately matter. Whether you're wise or foolish or rich or poor or happy or sad, accomplished or lazy, you all experience the same death. There's nothing to be gained by doing the things that he has done, he realizes. And I know this sounds brutal. I know it sounds defeatist. I know it sounds depressing. But think of it, it only sounds that way from a first half of life perspective, a first half of life mentality before the curtain is pulled, before the illusions that we live by are stripped, we're going to be looking for meaning in accomplishment. And so everything he's saying is just flying in the face of that. We can't accept it. But after some breakdowns and some breakthroughs, and we begin to realize that meaning must come from a different direction if it's going to come at all, then we realize then this life of material accomplishment ultimately is only going to come to an absurd place. The teacher has broken through now to the second half of life. Look at how he, as he makes these crazy statements, answers his own central question, remember, which was, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What's going to keep us going in the second half of life when you realize that's not where meaning occurs? Well, in chapter 2, starting at verse 24, he writes, There is nothing better for a man than taking meat and drink and having delight in his work. This, again, I saw was from the hand of God, who may take food or have pleasure without him. I am certain that there is nothing better for a man than to be glad and to do good while life is in him. And for every man to take food and drink and have joy in all his work is a reward from God. Verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than for a man to have joy in his work because that is his reward. Who will make him see what will come after him? Now I know this is going to, John's going to be panting to keep up. But chapter 5, verse 18, these are all the places where he's answering the question in basically the same way. This is what I have seen. Chapter 5, verse 18, It is good and fair for a man to take meat and drink and have joy in all his work under the sun all the days of his life which God has given him. That is his reward. Chapter 9, verse 4, For him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. A living dog is better than a dead lion. (laughs) Skipping to verse 7. Come, take your bread with joy and your wine with a glad heart. God has taken pleasure in your works. Have joy with the woman of your love all the days of your foolish life which he gives you under the sun because that is your part in life and in your work which you do under the sun. Whatever comes to your hand to do with all your power. Chapter 12, verse 13. This is the last word. All has been said. Have fear of God and keep his laws because this is right for every man. God will be judge of every work and every secret thing, good or evil. He answers his question. What do people gain from all their labors which they toil under the sun? Over and over in eight out of the 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. So what seems like fatalism when you look at it this way through the second half of life perspective, is really liberation. It's the freedom from the illusion of control by accomplishment that keeps us in the same patterns of thought and behavior over and over and over again. The teacher is trying to redirect us to the only place that we will ever find meaning. This moment. This moment right here, this meal, this person, this task at hand, this work that we are doing, all we have and all we are is located always and only in this moment, right now, on this spot, on this blue ball spinning in the blackness of space with no backup. This is it. If we don't find it here, we won't find it anywhere. Now we want to imagine that we're creating some sort of backup, right? We're trying to imagine that we're creating some kind of risk-free insurance policy with our accomplishments, with creating our legacy, even with our children, with abstract thoughts. We think that maybe we can somehow transcend the tyranny of this moment right here and right now. But again... It's all meaningless, except when it directly engaged in this moment right now, which contains all of life, all of meaning. Now, we're not going to accept that in the first half of life. Our ego is not going to allow itself to be that irrelevant, (laughs) there's just no way. When the ego is that strong, when we're still developing it, it needs to see itself as relevant And this is going in another direction. It's in the second half of life that we now can allow ourselves to let go of everything but this now, but this task at hand. We're going to keep accomplishing, we're going to keep working, but the focus is now balanced between now and not yet, as we've talked about. The Hebrew bride being able to be here now, relishing every moment, yet still anticipating and working toward a change in her life at any time, not knowing exactly when that's going to happen, of course. This moment, this time for doing exactly what we're doing is where the teacher wants to focus now. And if we take a look at Ecclesiastes 3, it's in your handouts if you want to follow there, and John, if you can put it up, starting right at verse one. He's talking about an appointed time for everything this moment is the appointed time. What is the everything that needs to happen right now to affect that connection, that oneness? He writes, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take away from it, for God has so worked that men and women should fear him. That which is has already been, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what is passed by. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun in that place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time, for every matter and for every deed is there. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath and there is no advantage for man over beast for all his vanity all go to the same place all came from the dust and all return to the dust who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth i have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities for that is his lot for who will bring him to see what will occur after him This is the very best of Hebrew poetry, in case you're wondering. Just amazing to read and to understand the thoughts here. Again, to be happy in our activities, this moment, which is all there is, this planet, which is all there is, with absolutely no backup. Now, everything that stresses us, everything that keeps us awake at night, is what we imagine outside this self-contained moment. Now, there are going to be traumatic moments in life, of course, but when they are over, the question will be, will we return back to now fully, connectedly, vulnerably, so that we can experience again the meaning and purpose which is only accessible here and now? And I want to return just to verse 11 in chapter 3. He says, He, God, has set eternity in their heart. Yet, so man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. This is such a central line. But we need to understand what he means by eternity. He has set eternity in our hearts. The word there for eternity is olam in Hebrew. It's also uh, connected with alma, in Aramaic and they have the same sort of idea it can be translated either eternity or world which is confusing for us you know god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son you know so that any who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life world so loved the world and eternity are both alma In this case, Olam has that same quality of, sometimes you'll see it translated, he set the world in their hearts, or sometimes he set eternity in their hearts, but what does it actually mean? What is this idea? It can be world, but the idea of endless generations constantly producing over and over again without end, everything, everything and all inclusive, all time, always time out of mind, which would be past and future, and of course, eternity. Maybe we can take a page from the aborigines of Australia who have the idea of dream time. And dream time to them is all at once time. Maybe you could call it every when. It's all the time that there is just here now in this moment. And they believe that that is the objective reality of the universe, all at once time not the way that we typically experience it linearly from beginning to end in a segment. But this is the eternity that has been set in our hearts. The remembrance of this all at once time, the remembrance of everything as one thing, where we came from, who we really are in our God, and where we are longing to return is what is set in our hearts. But as we live here between heaven and earth, between now and not yet, We can't remember that fully. It's a longing, it stays just out of our reach. We can't understand it and we can't control it, but we can experience it in the unfolding of these moments. When you get lost in a moment and lost in a relationship and you experience that all at once time where the clock seems to stop, where everything just becomes this one timeless now That's what's set in our hearts, the remembrance of what that is. Ironically, it's the meaninglessness of physical life that the teacher is talking about that ultimately leads us back to true meaning, to the only moment that we have, the only moment that exists on the only planet that we have that shines like a jewel as if set on black velvet. If we're not transformed by a moment like that, then we need to keep whittling our stick, keep stripping it down more and more and more until it's sharp enough to actually pierce the veil of the illusions that separate us from being able to experience just that, our God, here, now, imminent, incarnate even, in us, through us, among us with us. Now, always now. Let's pray. Father, you are here. You're not somewhere far away. You're not in the clouds. You are closer than our next breath, more intimate than a heartbeat. You are inside our skin, inside our cells. We are swimming in you and yet we are mostly unaware of you. That's what we want to change, Father. Help us to move from a first-half sensibility. Help us to change our focus from out there to in here. Help us to see that everything that we need has already been given us, and it's just a matter of picking it up and running with you, in hand, in tow. Father, thank you for all the world's wisdom, the wisdom of the teacher, for Jesus showing us this very same thing. Help us to let go of what we need to let go of, to scamper after the teachers in our life, and help us to find you more and more intimately every single day. So Father, your love and your constancy, we thank you. And never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.